There's an amazing amount of technology that has trickled down over the years from Formula One and we see this technology being applied to our everyday road cars. Unfortunately it's not that often that we get the opportunity to get up close and personal with a genuine F1 car and find out some of the secrets that made these cars so fast. Of course as the cars age and they fall away from being current uh, we can get some insight. So we're here with Tim White from Garage 59 and beside me here is a 2000 model McLaren MP415 powered by a Mercedes engine. This particular car was the car that David Coulthard used to win Monaco in that particular season. And we're going to find out a little bit about what makes this car tick. Welcome to High Performance Academy's Tuned In Field Report podcast series. In these special midweek episodes, we look back through our archives to find the best conversations we've had through years worth of attending the best automotive events across the globe. We've pulled the audio from these tech-filled interviews with some of the industry's most well-known figures for you to enjoy as a quick hit of insider knowledge. So, Tim, for a start, let's go into the engine. We've seen some massive variations in the engine configuration with F1 over the seasons. Uh, this was powered by a Mercedes engine. Can you give us the specification in terms of cylinder count and capacity? Yes, yeah, certainly. So this was a um, V10, three litre engine. Um, in its day, it would have been making something around about 900 horsepower. Um, it would have done, uh, it would have been running about uh, 18.4, something like that, uh, uh, top RPM used. And um, yeah, that's... Uh no, I just want to come back to, to 900 horsepower from a 3 litre naturally aspirated engine. Uh, these sort of numbers we normally associate with forced induction and, and this is really one of the, the tricks where it comes to naturally aspirated engines. What we really want to do in order to make a lot of horsepower is we need to make torque at very, very high RPM and of course to make torque we need airflow and this is where that RPM limit, you just mentioned 18,400 and we saw the RPM limit over the seasons of F1 creep up and creep up. The problem with uh, very high RPM ranges is the valve spring technology. So can you tell us how this was dealt with in this Mercedes engine? Yeah, certainly. So um, on this particular engine, as, as has been uh, common in, in Formula 1 for many years now, um, it's, it's a pneumatic control system. Uh, this this engine in particular was quite special in that it uh, it had a, a system which was uh, variable uh, to based on a RPM mapping. You're talking about the pressure there was variable versus RPM. Correct. Yes. So so it enabled us to run a um, a low pressure at the relatively low RPM. When I say relatively low, I mean sort of nine, ten thousand RPM, something like that. That's very low, yeah. Yeah, uh, indeed. Um, and then uh, we could, in, th th basically this meant that we could uh, run a much lighter weight uh, valve gear, uh, so we didn't have to protect against some of the forces that you'd see uh, traditionally with a, with a fairly heavy spring that could go to that, the, the sort of levels that we would have to go to. Um, and then as the RPM rose, we would increase the spring pressure uh, effectively by increasing the, the pneumatic pressure. Um, and then as the um, RPM came down, uh, we would bleed that pressure off. And uh, it, what enabled us to do this was the fact that we had an onboard compressor. Uh, and this, so the, the architecture of the system was an onboard compressor, um, a reservoir bottle, 
which is what the the system drew on basically and um, and then um, a fill injector and a, a, a return or dump injector we call it a dump injector because it didn't actually return it to the circuit it dumped it to the um, basically to the crankcase so by controlling those two solenoids or valves or injectors as you've just called them you're, you're controlling the compressed airflow into the the valve train and the cylinder head and then out to maintain that that uh, pressure target yeah that's exactly that's exactly how how it ran um, it we also used that circuit to uh, regulate the bottle pressure as well um, by putting a, an offset on the demand of, uh, of of those injectors so if you was asking for uh, a certain amount of pressure you would look at the bottle pressure as well if you had to bleed some of that down you would open the injector more which would force it to over pressure and then the dump uh, injector would realise that it's over pressure and it would get rid of that pressure. That would cause a, a high bottle, a high usage of of, uh, of the air, and um, that's what would bring the uh, the bottle pressure down. Yeah. Right, you've just brought in a huge amount of information. I want to dive back and, and unpack unpack a little bit of that. Sure. And I think probably the best place to start is why do we need to use pneumatic valve springs what is wrong with a conventional steel wound spring where are the limits for that in an f1 engine yeah so i think obviously um f1 engines going to 18 for 19,000 and even 20 in, late, in later times. Obviously, the spring mat, controlling the spring mass uh, or the, the mass of the valve train with a spring, there's a lot of weight involved. These have got no weight; they've got no moving weight really on the on the on the on the, on the valve train. Um, retainers are very small, very light, lightweight seals, low drag, low friction. Obviously, one of the problems with one of these engines is when you're running at that kind of speed, um, the frictional levels go through the roof. Um, so, with anything you can do to reduce the the friction, the motoring force is 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 a gain uh, and an easy win, really. Do you want to take your car knowledge game to the next level? Join us in the next free lesson at hpacademy.com slash free and start developing your own skills today. Now, with an engine that runs to 18,400 RPM producing 900 horsepower, it's reasonable to say that that's going to be a relatively peaky uh, rev range. And of course, with a seven-speed, essentially semi-automatic transmission, uh, the driver, for the most part, can use a relatively narrow rev range. But the interesting part was you mentioned off-camera earlier that that's actually not always the case. So can you talk us to about... The, the rev range that the car does use on some of the circuits? Yes, yeah, certainly. So um, this, this type of engine, um, when you're running at a circuit like uh, Monaco is a, very, is, is a good typical um, example of a very dynamic circuit, um, <clears throat> in the hairpins there you would be running down to about 3,800 RPM in first gear, obviously not full throttle. Um, but nevertheless, it's got to drive down there, and then through uh, through the tunnel and um, pulling pulling full throttle through the gears, you'll be running full RPM, so 18.4, so 14, 15,000 RPM rev range. Um, <clears throat> so you've got to um, it's drivability. The drivability is the biggest issue. The other place with where it gets difficult is uh, somewhere like um, the old uh, Hockenheim track where you have very high speed um, for the race. Uh, so for the race, we would use uh, typically a first gear just for starting and then not on track. Um, it would be used, um, so we'd have six usable gears on track. 
but they've got to stretch up to something around 360, 365 kilometers an hour. And the slowest corner, um, yeah, it's, it's pretty slow. So um, you finish up with a, a, a bigger rev drop through the gears than you would uh, ideally like. Um, and this can compromise you on the kind of mid, not the very slowest corners, but kind of second, third gear, typically third gear, uh, where you would be lower in RPM, but second gear would be make the car unstable through the corner. Uh, uh, with a, a relatively peaky naturally aspirated engine, we tend to see if we run the car on a, uh, the engine on a dyno, we, we get a, a relatively peaky torque curve, and, and that can be problematic if you need to use 14, 15,000 RPM of that rev range. So can you talk to us about some of the tricks that were employed in this era to try and fill in that torque curve and get rid of some of those troughs? Yeah, certainly. So... Um so typically this, this engine would have a couple of troughs uh, below peak torque um, and the second one probably more, in, more difficult to, uh, that you would, you, would be, you would find you would, uh, you would encounter more than the, than the lowest one. So this would happen at around about 13,000 RPM. You, there was quite a big trough there. To help, to help fill that in, we would have uh, an active trumpet uh, this has got a really good um, effect of filling that hole in. Um, so you're talking there about variable length inlet trumpet, so you're a, a, sort of a tuning effect for that inlet trumpet versus the RPM? Yeah, indeed. Um, so uh, it was exactly that uh, uh, versus RPM uh, trumpet map, which we actually used to just use in one direction. Although if when you're sitting on the dyno, you could, uh, you could get ultimately bigger numbers out of it by having a having a trumpet map that went short long short long short again for high speed um, drivers didn't like this uh, they although you couldn't actually see the see the torque uh, difference on the dyno it looked like a smooth torque torque, dem- uh, torque delivery when you gave that to the driver they feel something that we can't see on the dyno uh, whether it's uh, a noise or a genuinely it does do it is difficult to say but if so what we would tend to do is compromise it slightly um, and just go from long to short um, now if, if, even with doing that you're talking about an engine that can change between 3800 rpm and 18400 rpm I, i'm guessing just about a split second how, how are you achieving such fast and accurate control of those trumpet lengths um <laughs> we have a 200 bar hydraulic circuit um this feeds a lot of systems on the car, but if we just take the trumpets, uh, or trumpets and throttle, because they're very similar. Um, this was controlled with a Moog valve, so um, uh, it's a, 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 a high-speed kind of electromechanical valve um, that can deal with a, a very small current, um, and they are extremely fast acting. So uh, with 200 bar behind it, it moves pretty, it moves pretty fast. Yeah. You've just mentioned that system, that hydraulic system is used for multiple aspects of the car. Uh, you've got obviously the trumpet length that we've just talked about. You also touched on there uh, the, the throttle. So essentially these days we see drive-by-wire throttle, electronic control generally, quite common in road cars as well as professional motorsport. You're using hydraulics. Can you just mention the differences there uh, where the hydraulics is superior to uh, electric drive-by-wire? Um, so th- th- there's a couple of things, really. Uh, probably the prime thing on, on a car uh, like a Formula One car here is everything comes down to weight. 
there's, there's a lot of a, a lot of the things that are on there because of weight. So we have to have we we have to have a hydraulic supply on the car, um, and given that we have to have the hydraulic supply on the car, um, we use it for everything i think in the in in the day when this was active then um el the electronic uh, or electric motors controlling things like um throttles and such were were not really at the level where 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 they are today uh today i think it's fair that you could take a slightly different approach to it um, in fact, I know some other cars which do take a different approach, but given that you don't want to carry anything along that you don't have to carry along, um, nothing gets taken for a ride on a Formula 1 car. All right, just carrying on that theme of the hydraulics there, we haven't really talked about the transmission other than to say it's a seven-speed semi-automatic. Uh, so essentially paddle shift, not really too unusual compared to what we see in a lot of road cars and, and GT3 race cars, for example. Uh, can you tell us how that shift uh, works with the hydraulic system? Yeah, it's, it really is nothing too special. Um, there's a switch, uh, a switch that commands um, commands the, sh the shift. Everything has to be commanded by the driver. So in this period, um, so this so was a legal requirement of that period. Yeah, correct, correct. Um, so this this was very much a, um, a time when there was no driver aids, um, and so everything had to be an input from the driver. Um, so on, on, on this car we have, um, we have a, a paddle shift, uh, which essentially is a switch, um, no, nothing, nothing special. Um, and it's, uh, it's this switch that gives the command to the ECU, um, which, then, um, which then activates the, 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 shift, the shift sequence. So essentially we're just talking about a, a conventional dog engagement, seven-speed gearbox, albeit this one is hydraulically actuated. Yeah, absolutely. Um, nothing special at all, really. Um, it's uh, we, this era wouldn't have been running a seamless uh, a seamless shift. It was uh, it would be what you would consider a, a conventional uh, sequential gearbox. Um, so everything had to be uh, requested by the driver. Uh, so no automatic shifting um, and everything had to be a single input so you could only do one gear at a time you couldn't stack them at this era um, that did change subsequently but in this era it was a uh, uh, one switch position move equals one shift bit of a simpler time yeah bit of a simpler time now again we're just talking about the transmission we've mentioned the hydraulics there and this is another area that hydraulics is used is uh, the clutch control so conventionally I mean we do use hydraulics for the clutch but at much lower pressure and normally it's actuated with a pedal that the driver uses his foot to control and in this instance it's uh, controlled via paddles behind the steering wheel so can you tell us why the steering wheel paddles are used instead of a foot pedal? So the steering wheel, um, so the clutch on a Formula One car is really only used for pulling away. Once once you're moving, clutch isn't used anymore. Um, <clears throat> so with two paddles, uh, it and, and, and on the hands, uh, it enables you to do a very nice launch by uh, using the two paddles. Um, I think this has become common practice um, for for many formulas now, where where you have the option to run a um, uh, an electric uh, or electric or hydraulic position control or some kind of position control of the clutch. Uh, so typically, what the driver would do was he would move one of the paddles to the bite point, um, and he knows it would be around about 50% of the travel. 
Um, there'll probably be a, a mapped kind of flat area in there, so if he misses it, he, he can miss it by a little bit and still be in the right window. The other paddle he would pull um, to full travel, uh, so that's with the clutch disengaged, um, enabling him to select first gear. As soon as the uh, lights would go out, uh, he would drop the the high the let's say, we'll call it the higher paddle, but the one that was pulled uh, pulled all, all the way, which meant that then the con- uh, the control system would be looking for the the, the highest clutch input, uh, which would be the one which would be sitting on the bite point. So what this means is he's very quickly at the bite point and driving the car straight away. He's not trying to find it somewhere around 50% of the or 70% of the travel or something like that. Alright look Tim it's been amazing to get so much insight into what makes this car go, just that insight that really for most of us mere mortals no one really gets to, to find out those sort of details and I think probably a key factor that I overlooked is that uh, in a prior lifetime you actually worked as the engine engineer for David Coulthard over a period of about 10 years around this era so uh, for those watching this is why uh, Tim knows so much about this particular car. Look, thanks for the chat Tim and enjoy the rest of your weekend. Thanks very much and thanks for the chat. If you enjoy this podcast, please feel free to leave us a review on whatever platform you've chosen to listen to it on. It goes a long way to helping us get the word out there. All these conversations and much more are also available in full on our High Performance Academy YouTube channel, so make sure you subscribe.